0: Ordinary television
1: picture here. Okay, uh, television. Okay, Houston, as I stand out here in the wonders of the unknown, and the I try to realize there's the fundamental truth to our
0: nature. Man must explore. Welcome, friends, to A Thousand Names for God. I'm using this show as a channel to explore my curiosities about mysticism, mythology, spirituality, and psychology. None of this is meant to be dogma, but rather to explore what's true about the mystery in life, about our nature, and about the cosmos that we inhabit and our role within it. So enjoy the show.
1: And this is Exploration and
0: Hey friends, welcome back. I thought today for uh, episode two, I would talk a little bit about why I decided to name this show A Thousand Names For God. And what I'm hoping is that as I can lay this philosophy out, hopefully in a coherent manner, there's a lot of moving parts and it stretches into, well, every single area of the cosmos so it's hard to keep it linear and I've been working on it for a few years but my thought is that once you hear it and start to sit with it a little bit you'll not only be able to make sense of things that are happening out in the world that you've seen before you're also going to be able to make sense of how you're interacting with the world how you're seeing and perceiving the world and that to me feels like a really important lesson because we often are deceived by what we're seeing and what we're telling ourselves, and so that's why the quest for truth is so important in religion. And in from a religious perspective, it's like trying to find out what's ultimately true. And of course, God is often referred to as the ultimate reality. And so we'll talk a little bit about why that is, what that is, and where this name really comes from. So there's a few concepts here that have to be understood. So I'm going to touch on each of them. And if possible, just hold them loosely and hopefully as the show goes on, I'll start to tie them together. But as I said, there's a lot of moving pieces, a lot of things we have to understand before we can get to to what it is that we're talking about. So I want to start by picking up on the idea of belief because, you know, I know when a belief is threatened, it can be easy to want to defend what you think rather than hear what's being said. We do this all the time as humans, right? We defend our picture of reality. We want to be right more than we want to actually be correct, right? We'd rather argue for our perspective, our point oftentimes, because if we pull on that perspective, if we pull on that point, we'll find that so much more of our reality is tied to our perspective and to our thoughts and so we're not when our beliefs are threatened we're not just defending whatever the belief is we're actually defending a whole list of beliefs we're actually defending a whole worldview that is tied on top of beliefs and when you pull one thread it starts to pull at the foundation of your knowledge and so yes you're going to defend that And that can also be something that gets in the way of us understanding what's actually true. So I want to clarify from the last show and just mention that as far as understanding beliefs and how they're grounded in biology, Jordan Peterson's academic work, Maps of Meaning and the Architecture of Belief, really helped me understand this. So I'll put that in the sources of this episode as well. One thing that I'm going to do with this show is not only give you some thoughts and, that I'm actually wrestling with or exploring, but I want to really approach this as a student and talk about all of the sources and make all of the sources available that I'm using to construct these lectures or arguments or, or whatever you would call them, right? These, these points of view, these perspectives. And I also want to say that beliefs aren't, they're not bad, they just are what they are. And my point is that you cannot change them because you want to belief is built into the structure of your being and it emerges within you as a result of you interacting with the world. And that's regardless, again, of the story that you tell yourself. So later in the episode, it will become apparent why it's so important to just recognize that you can't, no matter how bad you want to, you can't manually change your beliefs by telling yourself a new story. It, that's It's not going to happen because again, your beliefs are at the structure of your being and they're grounded in biology and survival. So they emerge as you interact with reality. Now let's move into talking a bit about how humans misunderstand their own ideas about God. And that must also be rooted in psychology because look, if the external world is objective in some way, you don't know that much about it. So we have things like the scientific method helps right it it helps us see through our biases a little bit but even then you have your perceptual lens to see the world so everything you see is filtered through your psychology i know i mentioned that in the last episode but it's actually really important that we that we really understand like what we're seeing isn't objective it's subjective and there are a lot of factors that change the color of the kaleidoscope based on how we're looking through it and so until you really start to know that, that you're seeing through a subjective perceptual lens, and we use the term psychology to describe that lens, until you know why this happens, it's likely that you'll end up being a victim to it, right? You won't understand that what you're seeing is subjective. So it's similar to how the in the Hindu religion they refer to this idea of Maya, right? It's the illusion that we're caught inside of. We deceive ourselves often until we can begin to wake up to what's real. And this is the importance of differentiating between what you think or what you tell yourself and what is actual and what is real, okay? So we have to start by being open to the fact that perhaps there is some space between what we're seeing and how it's actually happening. This, again, is is a lot of what the what Plato's myth was talking about when he talks about the when he talks about the people in the cave, right? They're mistaking the shadows and the echoes for reality itself, and so we have to open up to the fact that that could be possible for us. And if we if we don't, then it won't be, right? We stay trapped in Maya. We stay trapped in the illusion. So one way that we can make sense of our world is through anthropomorphism. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through some of the different elements that go into shaping our perceptual lens of how we're seeing the world so anthropomorphism as i said yesterday is it's when we add as i said in the last episode is that it's when we add these human characteristics to god or to objects or to animals we do it all the time like we'll look at our dog and we'll be like ah oh, he's so happy and, and maybe he is right or maybe you're projecting that onto him right it's, it's hard to tell when We are projecting our anthropomorphisms onto the world, but we do it all the time. We look at the tree and we're like, Bob Ross does it, right? Happy little trees. That's an anthropomorphization of what the object actually is. So projection happens when we take things from our inner world and we project them like a movie theater onto things in the outside world. And we hardly recognize when we do it until we begin to look for it. This is evolutionarily based as well because think about all that you have going inside of you. right? All that you have going on and how hard it can be to make sense of what you feel and what you think. So we project what we feel onto other things so that we can see it, so that we can organize it. Now, where the problem really comes from, the rub here, is when you don't know that what you're seeing is a projection and so you see this all the time. and you know, places like, the, like politics where people are accusing other people of, Trump did this all the time, you accuse someone else of something and you yourself are that, right? That's a projection. It's like you're seeing what's real about you and you're projecting it onto somebody else. And until you're aware of how you do that, you're going to do it rampantly. Now, let's also mention what type of awareness it is that humans have, which is finite, right? So you're a Boundary to being, right? You're a finite creature. And the way your consciousness works is by selecting things out of reality by elevating their importance. So, this is why you can get sucked into your phone and be completely oblivious to the external world. I don't know if you remember, people were dying from that game, Pokemon Go. Like they were chasing Pokemon virtual reality into real reality, like into traffic and off cliffs and stuff like that. And one of the reasons that happens is because regardless of what you're conscious of, there is simultaneously an endless world of things that you're unconscious of. So you have a finite awareness that selects things based on your attention, right, based on what you prioritize and you elevate as importance, and then you don't see everything else. It's why you can watch a movie and just be completely entrapped and. Not even think about the fact that you are, you are in a dark room with a whole bunch of strangers, as Alan Watts says, right? And so our consciousness is a selective mechanism that, that pulls things out of reality, and then that becomes the, the contents of our world, but it's finite, we can't see it all, right? We're finite creatures. And so there's always a world that you know nothing about, and it's right up against the edge of your world. And so where humans can really fall apart is when what is unconscious, it rears its head into what you're conscious of. So you instantly, oftentimes, tragedy or hardship is because we're actually becoming aware of something that was always true, but we didn't actually know about it because it wasn't part of our world. This is why unexpected betrayal can take us out so badly, right? So we suddenly see how wrongly we've conceived of reality. And as I said, our beliefs are built off other beliefs. And so, If that thing is incorrect that we're seeing, right, and we know ourselves in relation to that person, like a friend that really hurts us, right? We know ourselves in relation to that person. All of a sudden they're not who they we thought they were, we're not who we thought we were. And it just turns into a cascade of dominoes. Like our whole, our whole the whole structure, fabric of our reality can fall apart when unexpected information rears its head into our reality. And so so the idea with Zen Buddhism is that you actually pull the rug out from under yourself. This is the idea with the Zen Koan. I would also say this is what's happening when Jesus is is telling stories in parable, right? It's so interesting how, how how we try to force these stories into a literalism when they're actually parables, right? And what a parable does it's part of a wisdom path. It scrambles your perceptual lens. It's like what you think isn't correct. And so the parable puts a lesson forth that helps you re-understand your reality. So in truth, it's what's happening when something unexpected comes into our reality is that it's, we had been selecting information that did not make us privy to the full truth of what was happening. And this happens all the time. It's also why your attention is the most valuable asset you have. Media companies, news, like things like that would literally crumble, like truly overnight, if everyone at once stopped giving them attention. Right? They, they rely on attention. And, and this is also why they're so amoral about gaining your attention, right? That's why they'll, they'll use things like fear, right? Because our emotions modulate the way we see the world. They modulate our attention. If you stub your toe, there can be a million things going on in the room, but you're not gonna be aware of any of them because pain modulates your attention. And so your entire world is gonna be reduced to the size of the toe you stubbed, right? And so that's how it happens. And so the reason that these media companies, like they don't give a shit about you, but they're amoral about, they'll, they'll scare you, they'll use fear, they'll use all of the things that they can in order to keep your attention because that's all that matters. Because if you took that attention away, they would have nothing, they would crumble, you wouldn't, they wouldn't be part of your world anymore. And so if you keep taking the bait, you'll keep winding up on the hook, right? That's, that's how it works. So also when you think about how you spend your day and your attention, because it dictates the contents of your world, will dictate the quality of your time. Full stop. Right? What you give your attention to is going to dictate the, the quality of your, of your world. It's also what's behind the commandment that prohibits idolatry. So I think I'll do a, a Ten Commandments show later, because as far as I've seen, we, we don't understand that part of the Jewish law at all. But tied up in this idea is the human's great power for mimicry. So this is one of our adaptation mechanisms, right? We mimic what we give our attention to and then we integrate that into our being. And when we're young, this is why we play house and and play, play grown up, things like that, right? Because we're seeing things out in the world and then we're mimicking it and so that we can understand it and learn about it and then we integrate it into our being. And so our attention not only dictates the quality of our life, but it actually determines the direction in which we grow right? This is what's meant by worship. When we talk about worship, it's like, what are you giving the most attention to? That's what you're worshiping. And you're going to become that thing because that's how humans adapt. We become what we love. This is shown in the difference between the pagan gods and uh, monotheism. So I just mentioned this idea of the commandment that's like, don't have other gods, don't have idols, right? Now, what's happening there is that when a monotheistic religion arises god is referred to as the alpha and the omega right so this is all that is this is the ultimate reality this is like the hindu's Brahman. you know it's very interesting it's a common misconception that hindus are are like a, a pagan religion they're actually monotheistic right all things come from in return to Brahman, the supreme god so there, there's they're saying the same thing in that regard. And when you talk about God, you're talking about the archetype of wholeness, right? And so if you give your attention, that's worship, to what's whole, you become whole. But if you give it to a fragment, to a piece, that's an idol. You become a fragmented piece. You become a lifeless thing. That's the problem with uh, what was happening a lot back then when these commandments arose, is that people would create these idols and then they would make them into gods. And It's similar to the idea expressed in Isaiah when he talks about how ridiculous is it that you cut a piece of wood in half, half of it you pray to, and the other half you just burn to keep warm. Like, why are you praying to that thing? Why is it that you think that that thing can deliver you at all? and so to recap what we have here what we do is we elevate the importance of some things and that creates the contents of our world and then whatever's in our world we stack hierarchically and whatever's at the top we serve and so we make decisions that are in service to our top value right our top priority you might say and this is one of the things that can be really dangerous about addiction right they it begins to take up the majority of your thought process everything you start doing is in relation to that, right? When you think about people that steal to get drugs and stuff, it's like because what they're doing is that they're making decisions that are in service to the thing that they believe is the most important. And so you can imagine the genius of realizing that humans actually have to have a transcendent ethic, something that's above everything in our world, something that is whole so that when we go toward it, we make our decisions that are going to make us more whole. And so this is, what's, this is what morality actually is, right? Morality isn't, when we say just be a good person, that actually doesn't mean anything. Not, not really, because when we really get down to making the decisions to be a good person, we might actually have very different ideas about what those are but we don't actually know what that means. You and I probably disagree on what it means to quote unquote, be a good person. And this is the value of having a transcendent ethic because it organizes your behaviors and decisions around something that is higher than anything the world can present, because everything in the world is destructing, right? It's all going through death and rebirth processes. And so if we worship, give our attention to something in the world, something that's not a transcendent ethic, and our morality is then organized around that, we could end up in a really negative situation. This is how dictatorships happen, right? We end up giving our attention and our our... Uh, worship to something that doesn't deserve it that's not whole in and of itself and so we become a fragmented piece of who we could be also we have to talk a little bit about what we think god is here right we have to differentiate between whatever god is and what we think that god is we have to really be cognizant of the fact that a word represents reality but it's not the thing itself So, for example, you cannot sustain yourself with the word water or the word food, right? You actually need the substance behind it. And you can call it whatever you want, but you need that thing. And you need what it represents. When you think of God, you're thinking of a word, not the phenomena behind it, not infinity, because you are finite. You can't conceptualize infinity because you're finite. And so you have a word that describes what the infinite might be like. It represents it, but cannot account for all of what it actually is. So the more entrenched your image of God becomes, the more you're confining the dynamism and the reality behind it. This is why, in my opinion, when we literalize these stories, we're squeezing the life force and the fruit out of them. We're like, hey, it means this. It's like this. It's like, well, maybe maybe from that perspective totally, but is that all that it is? And if that's all that it is, it feels a little bit limiting. That feels like a human thing, not a God thing. That feels finite, not infinite. Terence McKenna had a really great quote. He says, Imagine an infant lying in its cradle. And the window is open, and into the room comes something marvelous, mysterious, glittering, shedding light of many colors, movement, sound, a transformative hierophany of integrated perception. And the child is enthralled, and then the mother comes into the room, and she says to the child, that's a bird, baby, that's a bird. Now instantly, the complex wave of the angel peacock, iridescent, transformative mystery is collapsed into the word. All mystery is gone. The child learns this is a bird. That is a bird. And by the time we're five or six years old, all the mystery of reality has been carefully tilled over with words. This is a bird. This is a house. This is the sky. And so we seal ourselves in within a linguistic shell of disempowered perception. Right? It is perception. Words help us organize reality. They give us a perception of what it might be like but they also confine it. This is another reason why, I think I've talked about this a little bit before, but in, in the Hindu world for the longest time, when people wanted to learn about Brahman, the ultimate reality, they would go off away from civilization, so into the forest or something, and they would practice seeing the world without words, without cutting it apart into finite objects. When you become aware of reality as it is, Without the concepts and the perceptual lens dulling it down, you start to get better insight into what's real. And so this is clouded further because God is something that we're not, right? We're we're talking about, when we talk about God as the archetype of wholeness. So think about the words that are used to describe God, right? We have omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. We're talking about all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. What this means is that technically God is without desire. See, you have desire because there's a boundary where you end and something else begins. So you're a piece and you need another piece of the whole in order to keep on living, right? You need food because you don't have it. Now God doesn't need things because, because from a technical perspective, if we believe these words, God is the thing without need. So when a mom comes in her room and says to her daughter, You know, God wants you to clean your room that is, in fact, a projection, right? It's no, no. It's you that want the room clean, and it can only be a projection. So just think about all of the televangelists and the pastors who talk about what God wants. Right? I've seen this so much in my life. It's like, no, sir. It's you that wants. You are mistaken. If you believe the attributes that you are applying to God, then you have to understand that what you are saying is that God is all pervasive, you might say, and so technically without desire. It is you that has desires. It is an anthropomorphization and a projection to say that the word we use to describe the infinite could be finite, could be with desire. It is always us that have desires. Now that we are aware of our finite awareness and the limits of our perception, we can start to talk about what it is that humans do have, which is a perspective on the whole. And so whenever I argue for something, I can only argue for my current perspective. It's all I have. And human perspective is limiting because their awareness is limited, right? So when I spoke of being able to gain wisdom through archetypal or studying patterns in the last episode... The reason being is because it allows humans to understand a picture bigger than what they're actually seeing because we can only take in, again, so much reality. Remember, our consciousness is a selecting mechanism. So we're selecting certain parts of reality as we elevate their importance. And so in order for us to understand more of what's happening in the world, that's what wisdom is right? And so we try to understand patterns and symbolism and archetypes. We have things like Zen koans or the the Christian parables, right? These are things that scramble our perceptual lens and make us aware of something bigger, perhaps a bigger ethic, a transcendent ethic, and that's what God is. And so it allows us to just gain a bigger picture of what's actually going on. So imagine you're looking through a straw at a quilt, right? In your, let's say 10 feet back. So you can see a, a bit of the quilt, right? Less than you normally could see, but this is a way of understanding how your attention is actually taking the world in. And so what you would do is you would study the pattern of the quilt if you wanted to know what the whole thing looked like even though you couldn't see it. And what I would like to present to you is that this is exactly what the wisdom texts give us. This is exactly what the the study of archetype gives us. We can't see it all, but we can study the patterns that emerge and we can look at it from different perspectives, and we can start to piece together the whole thing. And if you are part of a wisdom tradition, I would submit that this is exactly what you're doing. And if you go through tragedy, you want a wise person around because they're going to say, yeah, this is what you're seeing, but hey, this is what it might actually be. And believe it or not, this was actually the original idea behind the archetype of the priest. The priest looks at something and says, this is what you think it is, but this is what it actually is. You think that's wine, but it's actually the symbol of blood. You think that's bread. It's actually the body. You think that's a tragedy that you're going through and it might be it's also this. It's also this point of incredible transformation where that archetype really starts to go wrong is when they believe rather than study the pattern and gain the wisdom that what they're seeing or what they believe is what is ultimate. So you're looking through the straw and you're saying no this is all that is. So you're dragging people into your perspective this is where it can start to get really harmful you are it's a way that the ego unconsciously inflates itself to be equal with what is ultimate and something that's really interesting to know is that priests uh, the clergy anyway are actually one of the most narcissistic jobs in the entire world and so that really does tell you something about the way in which we inflate ourselves even if it's unconscious to be equal with what is ultimate one can only ever argue for their perspective. So whenever you're saying, listen, this is the right religion, you have, to, you have to believe this one, what you're saying is, you have to see the world how I see the world. You have to see through my perspective. And that there's so much harm that comes from that, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about how that happens. But you have a point, and so you have a view, and if you move to a new point, your view is going to change. And so at the human level, we only glimpse different aspects of the truth of what's ultimate. Remember the kaleidoscope example. You move the kaleidoscope and you see a different picture. You're looking at the same thing, but it's colored differently. It looks differently. And this is what's going on with all of our perceptions. So then we reach this other argument where people say, well, all religions can't be true. Right? They say, just by saying that all religions are true, you're saying that none of them are true, right? So there's like this logical argument. But this is to discount the way that our perceptual lens works and the consciousness level at which we're currently living. So imagine, I'll, I'll paint this in a different way. Imagine that there's a house and there are trails that come to this house. Now, one trail comes to the back of the house and a person looks at it and that wall's painted blue. And on the right of the house, there's a green wall. And on the left, there's a red wall. And then in the front, there's a white wall. Now, what's happening here is that each person has a perspective on that house. And one person's like, the house is green. And the other person's like, no, it's not. It's white. And the other person's like, no, it's red. Now, imagine it'd be ridiculous if we fought over the, hel- the color of a house. But we, we don't see how our, our perspective is influencing the things we say about ultimate reality. And so we are willing to fight each other over that. And so you say, well, all of us can't be true. Someone has to be the right one. But then someone in a helicopter looks at the house and he's like, oh, you're all right. You're just seeing a different part of the truth. That's what's happening there. And so when we raise our consciousness, I think this is why the when we talk about consciousness, they do tend to use words like raise or diminish or lower consciousness. Because as you raise your perspective, you see more of reality. And you don't see it in exactly the same finite way. This is another reason why I believe when you start getting into the mystical traditions of all of the religions, so I'm talking Sufi Islam, the Christian contemplative path, uh, Kabbalah and Judaism, perhaps Zen and Buddhism, what you're getting there is that all of their language starts to become much more similar. Like They start to understand something about each other. It's like what's true about their religion recognizes what's true about somebody else's religion. This is one of the reasons why Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk, and probably one of the most contemporary mystics that we have access to, he died in the 60s, um, he said the world cannot survive religious people at tribal consciousness. See, because if we fight over what color the house is, we are in fact actually missing what the house looks like. And actually, if we wanted to get a clear idea of what the house looked like, we would actually want to source perspectives. That would give us much more information than our own. John Vervaki in Awakening from the Meaning Crisis points out that this is one of the reasons why Socrates used dialogue in order to try to get at the truth. Like you've probably heard of the the Socratic method, right? Well, what happens in dialogue is you're actually sourcing perspectives. And what's happening is you're getting a better picture of what's actually true when in fact you do that. And so that's the opportunity we're sitting on with the world's religions, as far as I can tell. It's like, well, everyone has a different intimation and perspective of this ultimate truth. And rather than fight over who has the right one, we could actually realize that everyone sees something that the other doesn't see. And so perhaps there's a ton of value in that, right? I think about the Christians that are like, well, Hindu religion's not real. And it's like, and you're, you're mired in Maya. You're, you're just so caught in the illusion of proving your correctness that you're not able to see the forest. This is why I said it's not to be believed in, but learned from. This is another reason why Socrates was considered the wisest man in Athens, right? He was, as Vervaki points out, he was deeply disturbed by that idea. He was like, no, I'm not. And what he found out after really wrestling with this and, and engaging in this Socratic dialogue over and over is that The reason the oracle said that he was the wisest man in Athens, he realized is because he was uniquely aware of the fact that he did not know. He was aware of how much he did not know, and so he was able to account for that. Remember, that's wisdom, accounting for what you don't know. And that's also why wisdom and faith are so tied into each other, or you might say wisdom and trust. Because again, you have to trust the world you can't see. And if you refuse not to, you reduce the world to only what you can see. And that world just gets smaller and smaller and your options get more and more limited. So in consciousness studies, and several people have done a good job of mapping out consciousness. So Ken Wilber has something called Spiral Dynamics. David Hawking is a medical doctor, has a book called Power vs. Force. And I'll put those in the show notes, but I will be doing lit reviews on both of their work later. Uh, Because here's the deal. They might not be correct from a technical perspective because as consciousness raises the ability to use words to cut it apart becomes less and less. But adding a framework to the idea of consciousness will help you. you see that your perspective is influencing what it is that you're actually looking at, right? Where you're looking from influences what you see. Because remember how emotions modulate your attention? So if you look from a place of fear, you're actually gonna see less. You're gonna see less options available. And so some of us were raised at consciousness levels that aren't, they're not allowing us to see a higher perspective. And we just think it's the truth, but it's only the truth from where you're standing. If you understand maps of consciousness and you start to understand how it is that you can perceive more, that's what puts you in the helicopter. And then what happens is as you start to rise, and you're looking at these people fighting about what color the house is, you start to realize, oh, I think, I think we're missing the point here. Remember what I said about the importance of recognizing different personalities and how actually together they give us a much better picture of reality? My fiance, Danielle, her typology is an INFJ. And so she can read the temperature of a situation so much better than I can. Like if there's a group of people talking, she has this ability or this group of people working together, she has this ability to see how it's actually going. So when everybody else is caught up in their projections and what they think, her specific psychological makeup, her personality structure allows her to see a different level that others can see. So if you ever work in a group, she's actually an incredible person to have because if you want to know how it's really going, you can source her perspective. Now, how dumb would it be if I fought her on that? it would be nuts, right? It would be ridiculous. Instead of, I would be missing. I would be missing the gold. I could actually be learning and say, well, this is what I'm seeing. It's like, what are you seeing over there? It's like, oh shit. So maybe it's more like this. And we put it in the middle and we say, well, maybe it's more like this. We bring three people in, you know? And this is also the issue with saying all religions are saying the same thing. It's like, no, they're not. The beauty is that they're not. They're all offering different perspectives. Imagine a world without such variety. It would be the worst, you know. Um, This is also, as this is a complete side tangent, but why we actually have to have a marketplace of ideas to be free. Because this idea that we have going on right now with cancel culture and the suppression, kicking people off of social media, Now, you might agree with it. But the problem with using force is that you're not allowing good ideas to beat out bad ideas. And so we're, we're limiting our perspectives. And if we can source more perspectives, we can see more of what's true. And so the problem with using force is that it's always eventually going to backfire because it's going to diminish the perspectives that we have available to us. And so we need good ideas to beat out bad ideas. And that's why censorship can be such a a, a problematic or damaging thing in the long run. The last Dalai Lama at a conference, he talked about the importance of different religions to speak to different people's dispositions, right? And that's exactly right. When you think about what religion is, right, the word coming from the Latin Vulgate, religament, ligament right? So to, it, it's the most audacious philosophy a person could have because what they're doing is they're looking at the entire world and they're coming up with a coherent theory that ties everything that's ever been and will be together. And God does that. The ideas that we have of God is what is tying, religamenting the entire world of pieces back into the whole. And because everybody has different dispositions and personality structures, we actually need all of those different perspectives. right? We actually need these different theories. And together we could learn a lot more rather than fight about it. And so now I want to shift a little bit into talking about religious trauma. So two things come together here to form a real problem, right? So we talked about the pastor who does not understand the limits of his perspective. So he thinks, or she, who says this is what God wants, thinks that their perspective is the perspective. They think that they can see what's real, ultimately and there's a huge problem with that there's a huge shadow that that creates and now you have a child right so when you're in your formative years you're mapping the world out so you're looking through your perceptual lens that's your personality structure the level of consciousness that your family raised you at the the actual dynamics that your family is raised you within and you're creating a map of how to be here you're like, I should do this, I shouldn't do this, people shouldn't act like this. And you have urges and you're like, I'll try this. And then you, you, know, you poke at danger to find out where the limits are. So you're forming your perceptual lens. And you, as I said at the beginning of this show, you can't make yourself believe something. You cannot do that. Your beliefs emerge within you as a result of the reality that you experience. And so something really damaging happens here. When the pastor says, "Well, you have to believe it like this," or they don't even say you have to; they just say it is like this. Now, there's a disconnect happening. What what's happening is that that child has just started an inner war. Right? We talked a lot about that in the last episode. But what's happening is they can't reconcile; they can't believe what they don't believe. That's how it works. That's what I'm saying. And so they try to, though, because we never think they're wrong. Our first thought is always it's us, right? And so we essentially disempower ourselves to authority figures because we have to, because we don't know anything about being here. And so they tell us how it is. And some part of us, right, you're looking around and you're in the pews and the pastor's saying, well, this is what's happening. And I I told you, I remember this. I'm like 15, I'm sitting in the pews and I had just drank with my friends. I just discovered alcohol. And, you know, whatever it's you're growing up like you're gonna you're gonna find out what's in the world you're poking at danger to find where the limits of your reality are and so I just found alcohol and I had this group of like eight friends and we had so much fun like you just discovered a different kind of world you know and I go to church that week so this happens on a Friday night and I go to church on Saturday and the pastor gives this uh sermon about how one night of partying isn't worth an eternity in hell. And so in this moment, I'm like, I am now going to take that and I'm going to make that an inner war. And then I'm going to be fighting my way out of that paper bag for the rest of my life. And something happens when people present you with a picture of reality or reality presents you with something that you can't make sense of, that isn't coherent in your worldview. And that is a version of you stays there, right there. And you'll never feel whole until you go back through your history and you reintegrate all of those versions of you that are still stuck in the dark, that are still stuck in the loneliness, that are still confused, that are still disassociated from trauma. This happens with any kind of trauma, but there's still, there was still a version of me that's sitting in the pews, not understanding how this all-loving God didn't love me enough. And so when you posit the idea of something like, uh, I'll do some episodes on the symbolism of hell and where it comes from and stuff. But it's very interesting because when you posit the idea of the worst punishment you could possibly imagine, right? I'm talking about conscious suffering forever. And guess what you don't know? What forever feels like because you're finite. You don't have any concept of what would happen if you remove time and space. Not really. You can get intimations of it, but you have no idea how reality would present in that place. There's so much, you know, illogical fallacies in this idea, but let's just start with the fact that you're 15 and you've only been here for 15 years in this situation. I went to a church a while back in Castle Rock, Colorado, and, you know, I love some churches. <laughs> you know, I love, uh, I love the sacred. I love the ritual. I love the idea of connecting. I think in our culture, this idea of the modern person is so disconnected from their past and we feel it and it sucks. And so when you have a moment or an opportunity to connect with an elder to connect with old stories from the past, there's something about it that's extremely spiritual if spiritual for you, is connection to what's essential. It's one of the reasons why I love doing like a Lectio Divina practice with the Bible or the Tao Te Ching or something like that because I just think about how the thousands of other people that have wrestled over those words and, and been given gifts of insight, like it's just cool to be part of that. But I go to this church in Castle Rock and this pastor, who does not understand the limits of his perspective, starts to give this sermon about what he thought was love. And the problem is you only you can only understand ideas to the level of which you've experienced them. So you can say the word love, most people do, but they're actually talking about some kind of like quid pro quo exchange. Like I'll love you if this. And so when most people actually have no idea of unconditional love, right? Like loving somebody so much that you don't need them to do anything different. You don't need them to change. And when you experience that, it's... it, it It lights up your reality because you realize that you've been, you've assumed the role of the internal tyrant to try to get yourself love and you never needed to. So it's actually pretty harmful. And so all of these theologians and pastors that talk about how God is love, if they don't have a deep understanding of unconditional acceptance and love, then what they're talking about is actually pretty damaging. And again, that's the problem with thinking that what you think is what's ultimate. So I'm in this church in Castle Rock and this guy's giving a sermon about what he thinks is love and it's this do exactly what I want or I will torture you forever kind of spiel. You know the, you know the type, but I'm not 15 anymore. So I was like, well, I'm out of here. Like I'm not, this is ridiculous. And so I got up to leave. And there's something interesting about that too because when you are listening to people as if they have your answers, it's so difficult to see all their projections and opinions Right, Because you're, you're outsourcing your empowerment. You're like, I'm not whole. This person has what I need to be whole. So I'm going to like give myself over to them and accept what it is they say, even if it disagrees with what I believe at the core of who I am. But as you start to do this inner work and you start to rescue those old versions of yourself that are stuck in confusion and in the dark, you start to feel a little bit more whole and you start to be able to see when people talk their opinion. And remember from the time we're young, we're taught that those people have our answers. And so like if you're listening to this show and you think I have your answers, it's going to be hard for you to understand where you disagree with me. But I'm only giving you a perspective because it's all I actually have access to. And so when you do the diligent work to start to become whole on your own, you can you you recognize all of the opinions and and the nuances and intricacies of their personality structure that are coming through. So I just got up and I was like, yeah, I'm out of here. This is ridiculous. So I'm like leaving. But man, my heart uh, just broke because I looked out at all of the 10, uh, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 year olds in the audience that just, they don't know what they're, they don't know what's happening. You know, they're starting, they're, they're getting the first threads of an inner war that will last their whole entire life because they don't understand that this wounded person up on the pulpit is actually giving him their wound is actually giving them his wounds, and then they'll be forced to carry those wounds, and and part of them won't believe it, and so they'll be stuck in this inner war, and it's really tragic to see that. And I, I don't think that that is always what happens, but I just think it happens a lot because we misunderstand our perspective. So here's where my curiosity lies. What happens if you take the world's great religions and you begin to take out the personality projections and the opinions, the the finite human desires and nuances? So my theory is that what you're left with is love. Like in the final analysis, it's always all that remains. And I also think that's why when people take substances that change their consciousness level, like psychedelics or something along those lines, they often end up, and I've certainly experienced this myself, with this overwhelming feeling that love is somehow woven into the fabric of being itself. That the fact that we're even here is an act of love. And that's fundamentally what religions do. They remind you of who you are and where you come from, they give you a path to find it. There's something really tragic about the fact that we diminish that. You know, we always think, what do I need to know to be really good here? What do I need to achieve what do i need to do to be validated and so we're always on the lookout for how we add things to ourselves selves to make us enough and i had this intimation that your entire life you're here like you have the most treasured spot in all of the cosmos because you have a value system And you're conscious. And you're not just conscious, but you're aware that you're aware. You're sentient. And so you know what it means to hurt. And because you know what it means to hurt, you know what it means to feel joy and ecstasy and love. And so in all of the things that are in our cosmos, the trees and the stars and the sky and the ocean and the birds and the animals, we made it to the show. Like we're at the very tip. I like when Alan Watts talks about the Big Bang isn't something that happened in the past it's something that's happening and we're at the very end of it and we have this value system so we get to know not just what love is but what it really feels like to surrender into it but we get so caught up in the maya we get so caught up in the illusion we get so caught up in what we think that we need that we don't realize that we're already here we're already at the show i think you're going to die and when you do you're going to realize that you were here all along you made it there's nowhere else to get. You're in the show. You get to love and you get to know what it feels like to love and be loved and there's nothing else like it. It's why we spend our lives trying to turn it into a commodity, trying to find it, watching shows about it. It's like, cause you know, you know that's what you are. You know it at the very core of your being, but something in your personality structure doesn't allow you to fully accept it. And that's why we have to model it for each other because as I said, you can only experience it to the degree in which you've experienced it. You can't... Know, like knowing is a different phenomena than being. Being is what we are. Knowing is what arises from us being. And so you can know about the concept of unconditional love, but until you are that, you won't actually understand what it's like. And I'd like to say this as well. If you're listening to this and you're like, this doesn't make any sense at all, this is gobbledygook, it's likely that your openness right, as a personality trait is actually pretty low. So you're not actually necessarily open, and I'm not saying this pejoratively, I'm just saying this is how personality structures work and why they can be so helpful to know. So if you're hearing this and it sounds like gobbledygook, it's likely that your openness isn't very high. You say, no, God's not like that. To which I would say, so what is God like? Is he or she, or whatever your conception is, is God more organized? Does, it, does your God reward discipline? Does your God reward dutifulness? And let me ask you this, are you those same things? And so is it possible in that experience that the way that I'm talking about God as this open thing where we can really source perspectives to learn more about it is in line with my personality? And if it doesn't work for you, is it possible that it's because you don't see the lens you're actually looking through? And I would say that that's true for all of us. And so it's just, it's the knowledge of that, the knowledge that our image of God is not God itself. It's not the phenomena behind it. No matter what words we use or concepts we use, we are finite. So they're always going to fall infinitely short of the reality itself. And so what happens is if you can start to recognize the way that your personality structure is framing your reality and framing your image of God and the way that your upbringing has framed your image of God and all of these different things, if you can start to get to the point where maybe rather than emphasize the belief, you emphasize what you actually learn from it, you then actually start to surrender into the infinite. And that's kind of the motivation behind honestly, all of my work. I think it's very interesting that a lot of the world's great religions can be harmonized if you start to understand levels of consciousness and perspectives. And I think one day we're going to realize how kind of insane it was that we killed each other over this. But I don't know that there was another way because we have to evolve and develop ourselves somehow. But at some point, when you start to recognize the limits of your awareness and the limits of your perception and the limits of your image of God, you then become the pebble infinitely falling into the ocean forever. There is no bottom. The depth of God is limitless. And so around the edges of the ocean, we have all of our ideas of God and we have good theological concepts and we have philosophies. But as I said, knowing and being are different phenomena and knowing actually arises from being. You might even say that knowing is a gift of being itself. We get to know, we get to explore. But I think when you start to taste that depth, you start to realize there is a point, and this is where like in uh, Eastern Orthodox, they would call this theosis, right? This is the becoming of God. And in Hindu, when you realize Atman, the soul, is Brahman, right? So there's, you start to realize at the very highest levels of reality, of perception, when you walk these paths far enough, you get to a point where you and God start to be in this intimate love where no space actually exists between your heart and God you start to lose the lines and the designation where you and God start to be other than each other. And again, in the West, this is a hard concept for us to get our minds around, though it's a concept in Christianity called theosis. And If you want to learn about it, you could just look that up. But there's a version of this in every single one of the world's great religions. And the reason being is because love is the thing that dissolves boundaries. And so as you get into the depth of God and as you start to relinquish your concepts that keep you separate. See, the thing about knowing and intellectual ideas is what they actually are is a, they're a, a method of subtraction, right? So what we do is we divide, remember the Terence McKenna quote, we divide reality up so that we can know more about it. So it's really hard to get to the whole, the point of unity through division, right so this is the problem with thinking that you can embody an intellectual version of love it's like no because when you actually fall in love or have an experience of spontaneous love you and that thing stop you cease being experientially different than each other and you probably recognize that like in music even right if you really if a song comes on that really grips you in the 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 vibration of it really resonates with something at the center of you, of who you are. That's a moment of truth. And you aren't the song, and the song's not you, but in that, that moment, you have the experience of unity. You stop being separate than each other. And I would say the same thing happens with making love, right, with your partner. It's like if you're really in it, you really surrender and give yourself over to it. There's a moment where you stop being other than each other. These are these moments of experiential love and these are what give us an intimation of what is actually possible. And so all of these paths in in my humble perspective are actually to walk you toward that center. They're to walk you toward that that experiential aspect of being that can't be divided into words. And in that moment you become whole. You become connected to what is whole. You and wholeness stop being separate from each other. That's what we're sleeping on when we're fighting about whose belief is correct.
1: Caught up in specialness I wish you could see That we are kings of in comparison. Looking outside of me. Now I see this world is unraveling. I wonder who could we be? Oh, I don't want to see us lose any more time. More time. This moment is a mountain to move, so move it inside and wake up now. Some forgiveness Give it to me